Welcome back to Brain Train. I'm Rachel Suhami, and with me today is James Coughlin. Hi, I'm James, I'm a computer programmer. And sitting opposite him is Ellie Ledbetter. Hello, I'm Ellie, uh, I'm a social insect biologist from Royal Holloway. James, uh, you asked, you answered our last question, um, and you've got a question for Ellie, what is it? Yeah, so um, in the last episode we talked um, a lot about robots and artificial intelligence, and I was reading something at the time that was um, making an analogy between human brains being made of fairly simple things like neurons, but being capable of very sophisticated thoughts and behaviour, and was making an analogy between that and sort of ant colonies, where ants are individually quite unsophisticated, but collectively ant colonies do an awful lot of very sophisticated high-level things. Um, And I suppose that got me thinking, well, how do insects think? So I guess that that issue can be addressed at at two different levels, really. Um, So on the one hand, there's the fact that ants or bees or all sorts of social insects, even wasps, um, they... uh, Although on an individual level they might not be that smart or they might not um, do stuff that we consider as being that intelligent, um, their societies together can achieve some quite impressive stuff, right? Um, but there's also uh, the question of actually, despite having their small brains, are they are they actually quite clever in themselves? Mm. Um, so maybe first of all we could talk about what their societies can actually do. Um, mm-hmm. And something that I think is a really good example of, of this kind of idea of, uh, of something smart um, emerging from really simple processes is the way that uh, social insects find new nest sites. Um, so if you imagine a honeybee colony, um, honeybees nest in hollow cavities in trees, yeah, and occasionally they need to move house because their colony's got too big, so they need to split. And then... Um, so scout bees could go out and look for for different new nest sites um, all over the, the forest or wherever they're living. Um, but the problem is a scout bee can't necessarily compare all the different nest sites that it finds uh, to pick the best one. And it, even if it could, it couldn't necessarily communicate that to the rest of the colony. So what happens is that uh, an individual scout might find a particular site and it'll go back to the colony and I'll use the bee dance, which is uh, something we can go into in a minute maybe, but it's a way of telling the other bees where where to go, where the location of something is. And so that bee will dance to indicate a particular site. But the really cool thing is that when, um, depending on the quality of that site, the bee will dance for, for longer or for shorter, so for a really not that great site, um, it won't dance for very long which means that not many of the other bees will go and look at that particular site just because they won't encounter that dance. Yeah, It's not because they're making any judgment about the quality of that site, it's just that by, they're not likely to bump into that dance very very easily. Oh, so they, just, they aren't all sort of sitting around having a conversation, there's just a bee is dancing and other bees are sort of stumbling Others around to kind of and they will respond to whoever that they encounter dancing. That's so right, if a yeah. dance is short-lived, not many bees will notice it. Exactly, okay. yeah. And if a bee has found a really good site, what it judges is a really good site, it'll dance for a long time, which means more bees will kind of stumble across that dance, okay. go there, and they will dance for that site. Eventually the whole colony will um, converge on 
dances for one particular site, which is how they make the decision about where they're going to go. So nobody individually compared all the sites, but mm. they they chose the best one through a kind of self-organising process. And is that... Do you know if that's subjective? I mean, if you sent one scout bee out to a site, would it come back and do the dance for the same amount of time as if you sent out a different scout bee? Yeah, so in general they do... they. They have they do vary slightly in how they kind of calibrate their dances or how they judge something, um, but in general they you know uh, there are certain rules which determine what is a good nest site. Mm-hmm. I think especially so that's something that's been studied a lot more in ants. It's to do with kind of how many entrance holes there are. Like you don't want much. You don't want um, big entrance holes because that would let a lot of predators in. So ants um, they do have a kind of, they do kind of converge on what is a good nest site or not. And how much, like, do they have to learn how to do that? Or can any well, that's bee really... or ant or, or, or whatever we're talking about do that sort of from birth? Yeah, that's a really good question, and it's something that we still don't know. So okay. probably with the, the waggle dance, so I should probably say a bit about what the waggle dance actually mm-hmm. is, right? So um, uh, waggle dance is something that was discovered by Carl von Frisch, um, in the, originally in the 1930s, I think, but he got the Nobel Prize for it in the 1970s. Um, and what he discovered was that if a bee wants to communicate about a particular location, say a really good flower patch, um, she'll come back to the nest and she'll do this kind of figure of eight dance on the, on the honeycomb. And the angle of that dance to the vertical, so say it's 90 degrees um, to the top of the hive, indicates that the other bees should fly at 90 degrees to the sun uh, and the um, the duration of the central run um, indicates how far they should actually go. So it's a way of saying fly in this direction and fly um, for, for however far, so many meters. Yeah. yeah. Why was I talking about the dance? Oh, about learning to use yeah. the dance. So that would be a really hard thing to learn. You can imagine it, it's quite... Um, it would be quite odd if bees were to learn by trial and error. Oh, if I if I go out of the hive, turn towards the sun, take go ninety degrees from that, and then fly to a particular feeder or fly in that direction, I tend to find food. Yeah, that would be a really tough thing to learn. So probably learning. Um, probably this is something that they they can do without learning. Um, but we don't know how yet, and that's actually quite a lot of what my research is about. Okay. So looking at looking at how it is that bees understand this dance, and what's different about if they learn about a location through following a dance to if they learn um, by going there themselves. So I suppose there's two sides to that. There's there's you have some information and you need to dance about it to to tell to other people versus you're seeing another bee dance and you need to understand what that means. Are those two separate process like? Learning to read versus learning to write, I suppose, are they are they sort of two di- separate processes? Um, yeah, I mean they're 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 definitely um, well they're definitely very closely related, but yes, they're very separate. Um, nobody, we still don't know if anyone if bees have to learn to dance either, or how how much better they get at dancing, whether they get better at dancing through experience. Um, we just don't know. Okay. <laughs> Um, the one interesting thing, though, is that they do have um, they ha- each bee has their own kind of different um, calibration of the dance. So one bee might um, always dance for say, say the two second um, 
uh, say the dance for two seconds, whether that indicates 50 metres, whereas for another few, another bee that might indicate 60 metres or so. They all have their kind of individual calibration curves, so um, so they do vary. It's not like it's a perfect system, but um, but we don't know how much learning is involved in that. Can bees recognise each other? Um, no, no, well, if you think about a honeybee hive, it's actually in the in the dark, so visually they can't recognise each other. Um, they can probably recognise whether an individual is a nest mate or not by its smell, although that's actually more common in other, in, in for example, wasps, whatever. Honeybees aren't necessarily that great at that either. Um, but uh, there are wasp species who um, seem to be able to recognise each other's faces and discriminate wow. about, uh, recognise who the dominant is on the basis of their face. That's quite amazing I was asking yeah. because if there's this sort of calibration curve for the dance how do you know how far to go you could go yeah. too short and or too long and, mm-hmm. well um, one of the things that I, I'm, I'm actually hoping to look at is whether um, if you have a particular um, if you if you your calibration if you prefer to dance with in other individuals who share the same kind of calibration as you okay <laughs> these dancers are they particular to colonies or are they more like per species i suppose are they could they be seen as sort of artifacts of culture of of a colony or is it like all honeybees everywhere do the same thing yeah um it would be lovely if they varied between colonies but sadly they don't it turns out so and they do vary between um uh subspecies i think it is or no sorry between species so they have uh, different honeybee species have slightly different um calibrations of the dance right um but between colonies uh, nobody's found that one one colony has one particular calibration whereas another will have another and um, which is kind of disappointing because it would be evidence of of kind of social learning perhaps of, of the dance but we we don't see that mm. i suppose i might think of it as more surprising that they that they're all like just because it's something that people would think oh you'd, you'd have to learn that it would have to be passed down um, by, you know, mm-hmm. people learning it from each other. But if it's something they sort of do innately, mm-hmm. um, or if even something like you know language, we have, you know, we we pick up language from each other. Like it's a, it the ability to have language is something that all humans have, but we still have to learn some arbitrary thing that humans have designed in order to participate in that. So it's sort of more surprising that mm-hmm. this isn't something they even have to learn. It's just sort of automatic. Yeah. Yeah, it seems to be, if if there really is no role of learning in it, then it seems to be a symbol that something is just born being able to understand, which is, it's hard to think of an analogy of that in, even in humans, you know, there isn't necessarily something as symbolic and abstract as that, that we can just recognise and know what it means. So do you, do social insects use mechanisms like this for all of their sort of large scale behaviour? Like we've talked about going out and finding food. Mm-hmm. Um some of the other things that social insects can do, so, so I've sort of mentioned, um, like defending the hive against uh, attacks, or um, some kinds of ants do sort of agriculture, they grow fungus underground and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, are similar mechanisms involved in all of those sort of large scale behaviours, or do they have different mechanisms? Um, I guess, uh, well, uh, quite a lot of them involve collective collective behavior so mm. simple rules that produce kind of larger scale phenomena whatever um, um, in terms of the actual mechanisms themselves 
then usually insect communication is pheromonal. So, um, for example, producing an, a volatile alarm substance when you encounter a predator, which just induces a reaction in kind of every other member of your colony. Um, but even those kind of uh, responses can be quite complex. So, for example, a, an alarm pheromone, quite often if, if a, a bee or an ant encounters it near the nest, then they're really aggressive and they go and attack whatever is whatever predator is there or anything that they can find nearby. Um, but if they encounter it away from the nest, where there's less probability of there being um, other individuals to attack at the same time, because just one insect on its own isn't going to be able to do much against a predator, probably. Right. right? Um, so then they don't respond to the alarm pheromone or they, or they um, avoid that particular area. So they do... Even though pheromones seem to be quite a simple thing, they can elicit complex responses. And they can even, um, so we found recently that uh, bee alarm pheromones, um, they don't necessarily just elicit a response, but the individual also learns about the context in which he encountered that pheromone. So um, for example, say a badger were to uh, elicit, to cause other bees to produce alarm pheromone. Mm. Um, you would expect that maybe a bee that had experienced that alarm pheromone and attacked the badger would next time not need the alarm pheromone to know to attack the badger. Right. right? So they can learn about, well, potentially about predator identities just through an alarm pheromone rather than being attacked by the predator themselves. Okay. Well, so the, the second time a badger show, shows up, they would recognise it as a badger without having to be signaled yeah or res- recognize it as something something dangerous something which has previously caused another bee to produce an alarm pheromone okay therefore they should attack it how do they do that how do they I, I suppose see the badger through the pheromone I mean do they actually does there have to be some kind of direct observation of, in some way of this thing has caused this pheromone alarm how, well, how does that do, do you do we know how that works well so the way that we 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 looked at that particular phenomenon was we, we took a just a blue light so something that bees should really not care that much about um and we uh put an alarm pheromone in the same area and we measured how quickly the bee um walked towards the light you know? and because the alarm pheromone was there they weren't that keen to walk towards the light um, so what we do next is we show them the blue light by itself and we see if they're still kind of reluctant to walk towards that blue light mm-hmm. and we found that they they are but only if they've only if they've previously experienced the alarm pheromone not if they were just familiar with the light or if you give them a green light they don't care about that they seem to associate this blue light with something that they should avoid even though it's never done anything to them amazing is that something that's learned by individuals or by the by the colony as a whole? And so does, it, so does it sort does that affect fade over time as those individuals that learnt that die off? Yeah. Um, so I can imagine it would definitely when those I can't see that there's any evidence that that's socially transmitted okay. to other individuals. Although, to be honest, we've never looked. <laughs> um, uh, we don't even know yet if it's something that they remember for very long, right? So right. Um, there's a lot more needs to be done on that. But you know, this is kind of a new area because it, it, people generally think of insects as kind of very simple stimulus response in 
organisms, whereas mm. seeing them as something more complex is, is a relatively new thing. Yeah, I suppose that is yeah why I've sort of mentioned robots at the start, is that there is this sort of, they're portrayed in certainly like most sort of, you know, popular science sort of TV documentary type thing as like being pretty robotic, being, yeah, fair, following pretty simple rules, not really thinking in any meaningful way. Um, mm -hmm. Like, do we, do we have a sense of whether sort of individual insects do anything that we might call thinking, or if they are quite robotic and it's just those sort of, those small interactions that produce complex large-scale behaviour? Mm -hmm. um, well, there's certainly evidence that they do things that we think of as being quite sophisticated. The kind of conundrum is that when you see an insect doing something sophisticated, it makes you think there must be a simple mechanism that can explain that. Um, so uh, typically we'd go back and say, oh, okay, this can be explained by this simple mechanism, which means that maybe when we see other animals doing it, so birds or fish or something like that, we've assumed that there's something complex there, but they could just be using exactly the same mechanism. So an example would be um, if you let a bee watch other bees foraging on flowers through a screen so that bee can see the others but it can't go to the flowers itself and it has no previous experience of the flowers um, it will if you later let it go and visit those flowers without the other bees around then it will copy the flower color choices that it saw the other bees making so say they were all foraging on orange flowers and ignoring green flowers for example the the observing bee will prefer to visit the orange flowers so that looks like something quite complex yeah it looks like it's kind of learnt by by observation and um, it's kind of associated the the orange flowers with food even though it had never experienced food and orange flowers together right, it's um, made a, dedu a deduction yeah it looks like something like like reasoning kind of thing doesn't it? yeah um but actually uh, if you look at it very closely, you can explain that by very simple associative mechanisms, um, which when we can do that in bees, it kind of says, well, perhaps that's also what's happening in birds when they do that kind of thing, or fish when they do that kind of thing, mm. even even primates. So what would those mechanisms be? Yeah, I knew you were going to ask <laughs> that. <laughs> okay, so, um, so, so to explain that, I should probably talk about Pavlov's dogs a bit because I think it's a good example of how, how this kind of thing works. So this is a phenomenon called second-order conditioning. So Pavlov's dogs famously learnt that a bell predicts food. Mm. Yeah, so they would start to salivate when they heard the bell by themselves, by, its, by, themselves, uh, by itself. Um, but in a less famous other experiment, Pavlov also showed that, so you have these dogs that have learnt bell equals food and if you also train them that sometimes when you hear the bell you see a black square if you later show them the black square by the by itself they'll start to salivate so they've connected that black square with food even though it it itself never predicted the arrival of food. Okay. So it's kind of a second, it's called a second order conditioning process. It's like black square equals bell equals food. Right. Um, so if you think about the bees, 
we assume that 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 bee that's watching through the screen has some life experience yeah it should have learnt that other bees don't tend to hang around unrewarding flowers that have no nectar in them yeah so it should have developed an association between i see another bee there's food there yeah when it's watching through the screen it then sees those other bees and it sees an orange flower so it should associate orange flowers with other bees and it works the same way so it associates orange flowers with other bees with food so it makes the second order link of orange flowers equal food and the way you can test that is by changing their life experience so you can um, train them uh, that conspecifics tend to predict quinine which bees really hate yeah it's a it's a aversive substance and if you do that you see that they um, show the opposite behavior. So they, they don't copy the flower color choices of other bees, they um, avoid them. So which suggests that this is something which is just an associative process rather than anything, any form of reasoning. So Ellie, is there a question that you would like to ask your field? You've talked a bit about there are things that we don't know. Um, what's, what's for you is the burning question? Um, for me, I think um, the biggest question it goes a, a long way beyond kind of bees and wasps into um, the question of animal intelligence in, in general. And that's that um, a lot of the stuff that we hear about intelligence is all to do with whether um, animals are doing things for particular reasons or whether they um, understand the actions of others or understand what others are thinking, which is something that we do think of as being really clever. Um, but what, uh, what all that kind of thing invokes is um, the question of whether animals have consciousness. Uh, because you can't really have theory of mind, you can't really understand what other animals are thinking or what other humans are thinking unless you have consciousness. Yeah, we could program a robot to behave as though it had theory of mind, but unless it is actually conscious, um, we can't uh, say for definite. Yeah. Um, so I would like to see more explana uh, exploration of what consciousness actually is, wow. which is really hard. Yes, to say. Blind me. But I think it's the big burning question that we all struggle with because um, quite a lot of the time for primate research, um, people are looking for things that really suggest that, that they that we assume that there is some form of consciousness there um, and that's what we end up arguing about all the time so it would be nice to know how we can move forward with that really. I mean that's that's all encompassing because that's a philosophical question as well about what is what what do we consider to be consciousness mm -hmm. um so where would you where would you even start with that yeah it's hard <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean in your in your field what do you if someone said you can have all the money you want yeah what, what would you where would you start well i uh i think probably the most promising um area would be to start with neurobiology so um the one thing that we do know is humans have consciousness right or we, I mean, in a way, I don't even know, none of us know that each other are conscious, but I think it's, most people find it reasonable to assume that, that everyone else is, yeah. And we don't know about primates and we don't know about everything else. Perhaps they are, perhaps they aren't. Um, but in humans, there are certain, um, certain things that we do consciously and certain things that we do unconsciously. So, for example, we have a lot of different visual pathways 
and some of them we know that we're processing them and some of them we don't. Um, so for example, uh, certain blind people, um, they might not, they, they say that they can um, recognize things or sense when something is behind them or something like that, even though they don't think they can do it. I really haven't explained that very well. <laughs> so they're, not, they're not aware of seeing yes, things. Yes, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Of, of having a picture in their mind that their eyes are producing, but they're still aware of. Yes. Uh huh. So they they um, if you ask them, is is there someone behind you? They might get the answer right, but they claim that they they don't know. Yeah, they don't know how they got the the answer right. Right. Um, so um, that's evidence for um, unconscious visual pathways and conscious visual pathways. Yeah. Um, so perhaps we could look in animals and see whether those they have uh, or primates particularly um, whether they share those particular conscious pathways would be a place to start I guess Wow, is anyone is anyone doing that work that you know of? Um, not that I know of but I'd like to know if there is <laughs> Okay, well um, contact us if that's what you're doing <laughs> Thank you, Ellie, for some fantastic answers. That was incredibly interesting. And thank you, James, for posing the question. That thank was you very much for having me. Brilliant. Yeah, it's been fascinating, so thank you, Ellie. Um, and Ellie, you'll be back next time with a question of your own to be, de- to be decided. Um, so thanks. I'm Rachel Suhami. This has been Brain Train. See you next time.